Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice. Giving you a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. Are you an expert in movement? And if so, is it reflected in your current business success? Today, we discuss Gray's new book, The Business of Movement. We cover the importance of pre-screening your clients, what defines an expert, tactics versus strategies, what role corrective exercises should play in helping clients, and ways to unpack anyone's movement dysfunction. So let's get going with this episode of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. All right, Gray, so you just got your third book. Can't believe you're an author three times over, but you got your third book out, Business of Movement, which when you told me that topic, I'm like, or that title, I'm like, what? Gray Cook's doing a business book? I'm but not that's even not, the CEO of FMS. Yeah, yeah you're not even uh, running the business here, So, uh, <laughs> which thank goodness. Um, but so give, me, give us the synopsis. Give us like the bullet um, of what that book is about. Well, number one, uh, I, I really am looking at the business as would I don't know if you remember this, but a long, long time ago, we were talking to Tom Plummer and a few other people, and the number one question everybody has is, what's y'all's business plan? And you and I looked at each other and like, well, we talk about movement stuff and people pay us. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And then a team have a problem like a bunch of hamstrings, and we'll go in there and we'll show them some stuff and they pay us. And, uh, and obviously, they... they uh, beat us up and told us that wasn't a business plan. So I ran back over to my office and you got charged with the FMS business plan. And, and really FMS, I think to most of our listeners is an education company. We talk about functional movement from the perspective of screening, testing, and assessment. We have pulled together, I think a, a pretty good toolbox of movement analysis, uh, thoughts and systems that don't really need force plates and cameras. And I'm not anti that stuff. We want every bit of tech that'll work. We've got, we've got apps and pieces of software that help us do this job. But the nuts and bolts of me and you looking at movement and being able to offer something in that situation um, is, is what we do. A lot of people only attend one of our workshops. And they try to put every situation in that basket. So I've had a lot of medical professionals sit through the FMS when you and I were teaching saying, I can't do this with half my patients. Why would you? Uh, how, what are, why does she need to do a push-up when really all she needs to do is get up and down her stairs at home? You're misappropriating a level of function. The SFMA, we have modified movement screens. We've got self-movement screens. We got, if you question balance on the hurdle step, the MRI for that's the Y balance test. If you're thinking somebody's holding their breath during most of their movements, maybe they got a breathing problem. So we've got ways to unpack this. But the thing that I think people would get confused about is they would learn one of our tactics. And if it didn't fit every scenario coming through their door or in front of their dashboard, they thought that maybe a functional approach wasn't for them. No, you just got to pick which functional approach is for you. So the business of movement for me was not just us writing an FMS business plan. That's just our own internal you know, business and marketing strategy. But the very first major move that, that I feel like I had to make in this business was to merge our movement screening business and our more medically oriented 
movement assessment business. And, and you and I were mostly running FMS, kicking as much of the medical business to SFMA as we could. And Kyle and Greg were running that with the help of Mike Voigt and stuff like that. But they were two silos, the same silos that we fuss about in, in sports medicine and healthcare and wellness and fitness. We were those silos because people taking a movement screen course didn't know what the SFMA was all about. And we had a bunch of trainers wanting to take the SFMA. If you're not diagnosing the reason somebody's got low back pain. Uh, hold on, hold on. Why is it called the business of movement? The business of movement is how do you use these different tactics together in a strategy? If, if you only know how to train people with a kettlebell, then sandbags, battling ropes, jump ropes, and Indian clubs, they're going to want to do that too. So my whole point is you don't have to fit everybody you see into one of the tactics we do. And so the one thing I wanted to do is show that the umbrella of thinking and systems when processing people's movement problem from rehab all the way to high performance, it's in there. But too many people pick a tactic they like, dry needling, kettlebells, whatever I like doing. Every situation doesn't fit that. My job is to render a movement diagnosis, prognosis, program, and outcomes. And so I use the tools almost in a cavalier way. I'm not committed to the SFMA more than the FMS. I pull that tool when it's appropriate. Well, and, and over the years, Greg, that's where the frustration has come in, and, and probably even for people listening, is they'll take a course or they'll do a movement screen. You know, for, for us, we kind of made the assumption people would, would take a, our entry-level seminar, which is talking about functional movement screening, our underlying philosophy, move well, move often, go through the principles, correct before you develop, all those things, we were giving them, giving you, and that's what we do in our level one course, we give you how to do a movement screen and more importantly, why. And you and I made the assumption and still make the assumption that if someone is sitting in our seminar, they can go through and learn the rules which, which to screen someone and then take that information and take action. Exactly. Whereas therein lies the frustration with people. They don't know, and I'm, I'm not talking about everybody, but a lot of people, I mean, I, I get the emails, I get the feedback. Well, what do I do with this? How do, I, how do I take action on this? Well, if the movement screen says you had a shoulder mobility problem, you're a professional. You should know what to do with that. But that's the frustrating thing. If we've compartmentalized and isolated shoulder mobility and they're not complicating factors, that's a whole different problem if you don't know what to do for that. Because you and I both came through a very classic exercise science, exercise physiology, kinesiology, biomechanics, sports medicine background. If we find mobility, we offer things that render greater freedom of movement. And if we find stability problems, we try to work on timing and motor control. And if we find strength and endurance problems, we know what to do for that. What we found when we started doing movement screening is a lot of people were bringing exercise science remedies to what I think are neurological-driven um, dysfunctional behaviors. Now, we have the functional movement screen, and obviously the thing that that is here to combat is movement dysfunction. But I honestly think that when people do our screens, they're blown away by how many people do have dysfunction. You took the movement screen over to GW High School, 20% fail rate due to pain preseason football. I mean, what do we do with that? I mean, <laughs> some of those are starters. They're going to play. And, and that dropped right in our lap. So the minute we looked up under this functional thing, we're like, oh, my gosh, 
there's way more problems here than we can unpack. And I think that intimidates people. But why is dysfunction here? Because people are avoiding disability. Well, part of, again, kind of picking the scab a little bit with the frustrating thing that, that we have had to deal with over the 20 plus years we've been doing this. And I think maybe what some of the, the business movement book does is we're not telling you, and this is the positive and negative, I think, of what we do, not just the movement screen, but even the SFMA and all the tools. We're not telling you exactly what to do. We're trying to get most people to think differently. And we are giving you some tools to really tell you whether what you're doing is working or not working. And I think that's one of the underlying premises of the business of movement is to, all right, we have the tools that hopefully, and the way we try to educate is to make you think differently about what you're doing. Almost like put a microscope on yourself. Is what I'm doing working? Yes. Right? But your, your book, I think, is, is giving you different strategies to figure that out. It is. And, and let's go real quick to the overlying premise of the way you and I teach. When we first packed up our suitcases and hit the road <laughs> nationally, internationally, and introduced the movement screen, the Gray and Lee show, everybody in that room, unless they had a medical reason for not participating, had to be screened. They had to consume and be in the hot seat of the same thing they were getting ready to do to others. And we unpacked a lot of stuff. And I think that opened people's minds. It was simply going through the experience and not just sitting on your perch, you know, commenting as a spectator about what somebody's saying about movement, but we're all going through the movement screen. And we would, we would always make people comfortable. Guys, you're not going to be perfect. We're all going to unpack problems. Part of what you got to do every day is compensate just to meet the goals. But anytime we can remove your reason for compensation, we just handed you more energy and less risk at the exact same time, statistically speaking. What I'm doing in this book is the same thing, but since we've been in movement for 25 years and we've been using movement at every level of, of the way people make money messing with movement, from, from your surgical rehab all the way to your gold medal, we've also realized that if we don't pre-screen lifestyle before we screen movement, we won't know whether we're working on a movement problem or a problem in movement that's being poisoned upstream by a lot of bad lifestyle habits and maybe poor exercise or rehab choices. You, you know, mine and your dad both would not go through a full course of back rehab. The minute Allison over at the clinic got them feeling better, they're gone because they want to mow some grass, they want to go do some stuff. So nobody completes rehabilitation and nobody probably goes at their lifestyle or training as tightly as they could if they were looking at the dashboard. It's pretty simple to look at. And so I asked the reader, the movement professional, listen, let's unpack your own crap first because one of the competitive advantages in being in the movement space in the future is if you're not unpacking the things that are upstream, making your movement outcomes worse, they're still your outcomes right? So whether it's an ankle mobility problem that's driven by, I never fully rehab my ankle or I can't stop running 30 so, miles a week. So really that's, that's the premise um, of the business of movement is to, if you make yourself a better professional, you are getting better outcomes, then you should actually increase your revenue. 
right? You should. You would and, think. Hold on. You would think. You would, would think. So, so a lot of people, I can imagine, and, and I'm getting ready to do this. I'm getting ready to go in a few places and talk about this book. And I know that within the first three rows and the first three minutes, somebody's going to stick their hand up. How's this going to help me make more movement? I already know I'm getting that question, probably prepackaged a few answers. But the one is, are you an expert? I'm going to ask that because if you're not an expert, I would tell you, I think a path to greater expertise in your space might be a good thing to do. And I want to help you do that. And if you already are an expert, then why aren't you getting the business that you deserve? Because uh, we look at it, expertise, you should be working in a valid environment. That's why nobody's a gambling expert, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an, it's an uh, unstable environment. But if you're in a valid environment, like we've tried to prove with movement, if you've got your reps in, like we always tell people to do, your first 15, 20 screens and assessments should be free because they're not as accurate as they can be after those 20 assessments. Timely feedback. We set you up for a movement response so you don't have to debate which is the best exercise. you got a feedback loop built in and deliberate practice, which means you're not just calling your hits. You better call your misses too so you know when you don't hit the mark. That's important building an expert. So based off what you're saying, if you become an expert, you feel that you should generate more revenue. I feel that you should have the potential to generate more revenue. All right, revenue. so hold on. Then the question become, put you on the spot here, which is why we do this podcast, Yep. define an expert. Because believe me, there are a lot of self-proclaimed experts out there. So how do you define an expert? Just because you do 50 movement screens doesn't make you an expert in movement screening. Yeah. Or does it? No, I think, I think it's, it, that's a good question. And I think you'd have to not just have credentials or experience. You would have to stand out among your peers. Okay, so if people with equal credentials, equal experience, still defer to you as an expert, so it's it's a hard thing to define because it's an easy thing to proclaim, right? right? Because I mean, what percentage of the people in our world will we consider experts? It's a small percentage. There's a small percentage of experts in any field, any field, right? Not on the internet, it's not. <laughs> right, but that's, but that's the thing. There's only a small percent of people who can get to that point. Yes. And most people are experts in a very small or narrow focused area. Right. Like, I'm no, I know enough about nutrition to know I don't know anything, right? But I feel I have enough knowledge in our very narrow space of movement that I feel like, yes, I'm an expert in this area. I'm not an expert in rehabbing somebody's back. I'm not an expert in certain other things, but I feel I'm pretty good here. Now, how does that generate income for me? Well, I actually think, and, and this goes back to some of the work we've done with strength coaches and the pros and stuff like that. If, if a strength coach in the pros has their statistics drop, and, and a lot of times it's not even their fault, but if we've got a lot of people getting hurt, we know somebody's getting fired in the NFL. It just is. It doesn't. Or if the coach loses their job, they're gone. <laughs> That's right. But but my whole thing is, why should we have to have the burden of closing this case or completing this program or generating this performance when movement isn't the only problem? Because somebody else let that be a problem that's getting ready to cover my outcome. And you hit the nail right on the head. I don't need to go become a nutritionist to know that this person's BMI is way off. And because they've got pain or some training issues, what are the most common inflammatory foods on the planet? So as long as we're aware 
that this could be a little bit of a nutrition problem. And we already know what the bad choices are. That's where my nutrition ends. I already know what your bad choices are. Let's not make those. I know what bad sleep looks like. I know what a bad breathing screen looks like. I know what bad hydration looks like. So I'm not going to try to optimize anything and give you a green tea smoothie that's going to hydrate you and get your REM cycles up. I'm not doing that. So I think so many people in each space of sleep, nutrition, movement, everybody's trying to optimize their silo without realizing that's good enough not to be causing that problem. And that is bad enough to be causing that problem. And and we've seen how sleep deprivation, dehydration, and poor awareness can all render pretty bad screen scores. So we know there's a lot to unpack, but either way, what I'm trying to tell the readers of this book is your results are going to suffer if you don't pre-screen what you're getting ready to screen. Now, pre-screening might sound like a a big job. In physical therapy, that's my history. On on the sideline, that's the information you're taking before you make a decision. And we have intakes in fitness. But I think we're asking way too many questions about exercise and movement and not enough questions about the things that basically regenerate that cycle. Most people in the movement space are going to render some type of stressor as their service. I'm going to sticking a needle in you is going to be stress doing manual therapy, but also putting somebody on an exercise program, handing you out. Why are we rendering stress when we're not fully sure these people are completely recovered and we haven't done anything to unpack that? So not every kid on your little league team is going to wear a Fitbit. How will you know? How will you know? You just start asking questions in education, and believe it or not, most of those problems bubble to the surface right away. We were able to do a nutritional screen in PE class two years ago for, uh, I think, second grade through seventh, and most kids thought Pop-Tarts were as good as bacon and eggs. As soon as we told them it wasn't, there was no debate. We, we told them exactly what's in here and what's in there and how your muscles need way more protein than that's got. They got it. It wasn't that hard. So it's really not trying to be stri- it's not trying to ultimately become an expert. Yes. It's about understanding here are the things that I need to be monitoring and taking action on. Well, I'm not telling people to become an expert in anything but movement. But if you're an expert in movement, you still must ask the question, is their movement broken or is their lifestyle perpetually breaking their movement? Because if their lifestyle's breaking their movement, you're not going to ever find the exercise, the corrective, or the therapy that's going to make them feel better because they're sleeping wrong, they're eating wrong, they're hydrating wrong, and they're breathing wrong. And so I don't have to be an expert in all those things to realize they can poison my movement outcome. So I'm going to unpack that in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. I got a lot of help when I'm doing it for a quarterback in the pros because he's got a lot of accountability. I have absolutely no help when I'm one-on-one with a tobacco farmer in, in the clinic. I've basically got to make him understand that there are a few things other than your spinal flexibility that are going to make your back feel better. So yeah, the, the assumption, and let's just put it in that perspective, the assumption is if you do these things and you get better outcomes, the result of that should be more business. It's never hurt us. Our, every clinic we've ever worked in together did not have to advertise that much. I, it didn't. We didn't have a marketing budget. Well, most most people get their clientele through word of mouth. I, and, I agree. And, that, and that's, that. well, that's statistics say that. You're going to get through word of mouth. You're not going to get it. However, 
and you touched on it, the problem we're faced with now, and all of us are faced with this, is that we're battling the internet and social media gurus and the people who can market better than, say, me or you. That's been our problem. Our problem is we don't know how to market what we talk about as well as we should. We don't know how to get our, we don't know how to go, go beyond kind of where we are now and get that other layer of people. And I think the people that know how to do that, unfortunately, have a good business. But if you pull back, it's like the Wizard of Oz. You pull back the curtain, you're like, all right, there's nothing there. And then I think that you make a point there. There's a sustainability factor. We see a lot of marketing uh, when people are startup and when they're trying to get investment. But no matter what you say, you're going to have to back it up eventually. And and if I've got a if if we've made a a bad say business, I mean I, I think quite a it's few. It's a shelf people, life. The shelf life is shortened, right? If you're not. If all you're doing is trying to tell people how smart you are, right? Instead of just acting on it, you're gonna you're gonna have to back it up. And and I just want our listeners to know that most of the risk factors we're looking at in musculoskeletal health that you can do something about within a week of working with somebody are many of the tests that we put up 20 years ago when research didn't tell us to do it. But we had covered all our other bases, and we were still missing something. So we just we, we got resourceful and did it. Well, the, the telltale sign for me over the years of doing this was, and people don't, a lot of people may not know this. Great, we were we were doing movement screens and teaching movement screens and assessments ten years prior to any research being done. And where were we getting most of our? Engagement. Let's not even talk business. Engagement. Professional sports and elite military. Right. That's where we started. Now, here's the thing for me. There's absolutely no reason for a professional athletic trainer, strength coach, sports medicine person to be using any tool that's not giving them outcomes. Right. Why would they? Right. They've got one. They're, they're, when you, in pro sports, it's only about one thing. Wins and losses are performance. Period. And if you're not checking that box, you're going to lose your job. So, you know, I remember walking into, um, I remember walking into one of the pro, uh, uh, it wasn't a strength coach, it was athletic trainer, director of sports medicine's office, and just sitting down talking to him, kind of like we usually do, get to know these guys. And I looked at his, I looked at on his shelf and on his shelf, and he told me, I said, what was all these things? And it was basically all of the quote unquote fixes that people has sent him over the years. <laughs> there was, you know, it was some medicines. There were some, there was a couple of books. There was just pieces of equipment that were just, he said, yeah, Lee, I just, I take all this and I just put them on the shelf. And I kind of every now and then look at them and say, yep, they didn't make it past the, they didn't make it past the door. Now he liked to keep them just to keep himself in perspective, but that's kind of what you're talking about is we've got to, we've got to just realize that we got to try things. And I'm sure he tried all of those little quote unquote fixes, but it's sooner or later, the shit's gonna come, the shit's gonna get filtered out. It is, it is. And there's one other thing in expertise that I didn't unpack here. And most people who cross that barrier and become an expert, able to manage most of the situations that are coming at them, they spend a little bit of time uncomfortable. And 
I was working with my nephew, who's a young quarterback, and we were throwing some football around, but we got the BB guns out, and I showed him how to do movement target marksmanship. So I got a Red Rider BB gun with silver BBs in it, and we're throwing a consistent water bottle with a little goop in the bottom so it flips. And I was hitting them as I was throwing them. And he tried it, and he couldn't hit anything. And and it's hard for people to do that because I'm not using my sights. I have both eyes open, and I'm just instinct shooting. And then I told him, I said, can you see those BBs? And he goes, yeah, I can. They're silver. And I'm like, call your missus. Left, left, right, up, down, hit. And so one thing that you and I always try to do in a very kind way is, oh, you think you can change a leg raise? Go for it. And people would stretch and it wouldn't change the leg raise. And, and so then they would get bought into the trick. There, since we started looking at movement and listening to movement, movement already told us what exercises don't make a difference now. And so that's how when we developed sort of a, a, I guess, a leg and corrective strategy, we were bouncing it off of a movement screen that most people can't fake, right? You're, you're working at your limits of movement. And if we push those limits of movement out and you're looking better, there's no placebo effect there. We didn't talk you into that. You had a hard stop in your squat and now it's gone. So I think a lot of people in the corrective exercise space love that term but they don't set a baseline and they don't look at the feedback. Everybody just gets the low back sheet handed to them and you do these exercises. But if you're going to use exercise as a medicine, then you need to dose it like a medicine because too much is not going to get you what you want and too little is not going to get you what you want. So I think the word corrective exercise has become a marketing tool and, and people talk about that. But you and I have never really saw a lot of flash in that tool. Most people don't like it exercise should get you what you want. Yeah, it's just a bridge. It's just a, it's something very, that should be looked at as a very short term. It's, it's, as you said, it's almost like a medicine. It should only get you from point A to point B. At point B is where you need to step up your game. That's, that's all this corrective exercise thing should be. It is. And secondly, I think corrective exercise is done when you can't think your way through the problem, meaning you're running a bad motor program at a subconscious level. That means there's nothing I can tell your conscious brain to overcome that. So we take it all the way back down, developmental progression rolling, knowing that there's magic in each of those spaces, sometimes just like turning your phone off and turning it back on. You sync up stuff by taking the stress down to something that the body can actually hear and respond to. And a lot of people... I think are more interested in slapping together the interesting exercises than actually spending five minutes and watching somebody touch their toes or squat. What I just did is not your workout. That's demonstrating the plasticity that your system has. If I do those same things to somebody else and it's not getting a response, they've got an upstream problem or I didn't evaluate it right. If you're enjoying the podcast, you'll be glad to know that the Business and Movement book is also in audio form. You can get it as an ebook, uh, you can get it as a paperback. But one of the things I try to do is make it very relevant to a lot of the questions that I've been hearing for 25 years about movement and how we bring it into a business system from leadership and training staff and getting the whole system sort of embedded so you're doing a more functional approach. Hope you enjoy it. We'd like to offer you a discount on Gray's new book, The Business of Movement. Follow the link in the description and use BOM20 at checkout for 20% off. That's BOM20 for 20% off. Grab your book today. Now back to the show. I know you were kind of referring to the book. 
um, upstream by Dan Heath. Yeah. Give me a little bit more, give us a little bit more clarity on what that means. When you say upstream problem, because listen, I get the emails all the time. Lee, I've been trying to work on this person's shoulder mobility, doing all those stretches. I see you, you show me in level two, you know, but they're not working. Well, yeah. And, and I guarantee you uh, that if we gave that person a wide enough survey, they would have some comments as to shoulder pain at night and maybe some sleeping position with their neck. And so, you know, fixing a shoulder without asking questions about the neck. I'm not saying the person who told you that needs to be the one to fix the neck. What I'm saying is the, the first few things I uh, think about when I've got a shoulder problem aren't, let's get an x-ray and find out how much arthritis. That's a responsible thing to do as well. But if I've got any restrictions in the major connections of the shoulder, like the elbow, the wrist, the hand, the neck, the T-spine, the AC joint, the SC joint, um, then you don't just have a shoulder problem. You have a shoulder complex problem. And the glenohumeral joint is just one contributor to that. So if you unpack the problem and there is no other structural problem, then I go right to functional stuff like lifestyle. How are you sleeping? What's your driving position? How long are you sitting each day? Let's see what shoulder range of motions provoke pain and stuff like that. So what I'm saying by upstream is, and what Dan's talking about in the book, is as healthcare professionals, fitness professionals, coaches, trainers, whatever, we're getting ready to see one of the most complex group of moving people we've ever seen come at us. And there's actually more people posting dysfunction than function. We're almost getting ready to lose that functional signature. Unless you go, go down in the jungle somewhere and well, find a kid that grew up climbing a tree, you're missing well, the functional signatures. Back when we first started the movement screen, the average, and this is, this is what we know now with the data, kind of to your point is you said when we go to high school, about 20% of the people were having pain. That number's about closer to 30% right now with people who have pain on the movement screen. And and the original hypothesis in the movement screen was fundamental movements, the ones that are absolutely paramount and getting you upright to a walking human, which we do all around the world. We have the rolling. The creeping, the crawling, the kneeling, the squatting, the standing, and the stepping. Okay. And if those things are absolutely considered vital to getting you upright and walking by the right age, appropriate time, then when is it okay to lose those? We know why you lose them. You have injuries, you have accidents, you have lifestyle impairments, you have awareness issues, you just lose them. So I'm not saying they don't get lost. And we've built one of the most perfect societies to lose a lot of your movement ability and still get everything you want. That was not possible a few hundred years ago. If you wanted something, you had to move your ass to get it. And you just did. And you don't have to anymore. But by running the movement screen the way we did and pushing those limits in a asymmetrical stance, in a symmetrical stance, in a perturbated balance test. And in some of the things we do, we've checked a lot of boxes of what you can and can't do. But if any of these cause pain, we got a problem. So my central premise was fundamental movements should be with you most of your life. They should be pain-free. They should be effortless. And they should be mostly symmetrical. And if they're not... I think that's a good place to start unpacking the problem. Is something causing this or have you just been like this for so long? And the example I use is there's two kids that could be limping right now. 
one kid that's got some impairments that you and I failed to see, and so we left them biomechanically defaulting to a limp because they got no choice. And we got the kid that limped for so long before they got rehab that they still got this little deviation in their gait. We do a movement screen. There's absolutely no reason for it. We pull out the goniometer. Ankles, hips, knees look good. The kid still limps. You don't see it as much in a run, and you don't see it on a balance test, but he still limps. Okay, that is a dysfunctional behavior. We don't know what caused that, but it was probably four weeks in a cast. But there's ways to get rid of that too. But it's not mobbing the ankle and freeing up the hip. It's basically rebuilding gait. I'd say 72 Turkish get-ups would probably scrub that limp right off somebody if the limp is a behavioral problem. So when we get a functional movement problem, you're behaving dysfunctionally for something that's already gone or it's still there and we need to unpack it. So- all right, back back to knowing the difference is where the business is. Well, that that's what I was going to get back to. Back to back to the book. When you say you know doing the movement screen and taking that information, you mentioned the word tactics. You mentioned the word strategies. Give us the breakdown between those two things. I think the the SFMA, our Selective Functional Movement Assessment, is my movement dissection tactic. When you stand there, look me in the eye and say, I've got pain. I've got these problems. Basically, you're in, you're in healthcare. So I'm, a tactic is a tool. Yes, it is. It is. FMS is more of our functional baseline. YBT is a tactic to really, really analyze balance. We've got a breathing screen that can easily let you know when you need to go deeper and do a breathing assessment and some breathing tests. But I often find that, that, a big thing that I've seen in our education, and it's because we're teaching new material. This nobody, there was no such thing as movement screening before we did this, and now there is. And a lot of people have adopted that term, but I don't necessarily think they adopted it for the same reason that we did. They adopted it because it was popular, and it seems to be a prudent thing to do. We did it because we couldn't do our job without it. And, and so I, I think that it, it is possible to probably build robust movement screens on an app and right, software on. and everything. But Those you, are tactics. Yep. Talk about strategy. Strategy is, am I using the right tool? And then what did I change if I use that tool again to analyze you? So I just thin sliced you for uh, squatting. And I did something to change that movement pattern, whether it be ankle work or functional squatting work. If you don't have any impairments, we're going to work on the pattern as a whole. And if you do have impairments, we're going to try to work on those impairments. Either way, you're going to see the same test again. And if I don't change it, it's on me. It's not on you. Because if there's a reason this thing didn't work, I already got to know what it is. I don't start scrambling after it doesn't work trying to explain it. Well, maybe you didn't sleep well last night. So is that the strategy then? So let's use that example. So you got a squat problem. You've identified the impairments, ankle mobility. You work on your ankle mobility and it does not get better. Because you go back and retest, it's not better. What then? Well, what I'm, my first question is, did you truly find the weakest link? Okay. Okay. And if you did find the weakest link, which is part of part of my frustration is when people try to take a lot of what we've been doing over the years and tweak it. Well, I like you guys movement screen, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it this way. I like it this way better. Well, based off of the strategies you're talking about, if you don't have a reliable measure and if you just 
take it and tweak it and do make it your own, which is fine. I'm, I'm never going to fault someone from doing that. My question is, is it reliable? Are you doing it the same? Are you following the same rules? Because that's the only way you can do what you just said, which is to make sure, is are you working on the right thing? Well, well if you're following the tools, if you're following the test, and you're following the rules of how you should do a test, and you know that test or tool or that tactic is a reliable way to test something, then you should be working on the right thing. You should be because you're in a valid environment. And I think too many people don't look at the movement screen. They see the movement screen. It it's a little creates a little friction. They're they're thinking I uh, you know, and it's almost like you know what I think I'm going to drive a car with more blind spots because I feel more comfortable in that car. But what the reason we do seven tests, the reason we do them the way we do, the reason we got redundancy, and the reason we pull pain out is because pain affects motor control in inconsistent and unpredictable ways. So. If your ankle looks like it doesn't have mobility and you also have ankle pain, then until I find out why you got ankle pain, right, I don't go, care let's about go the, back to the, the So let's go back. Ankle mobility, you do some things, it doesn't work. You're working on the right ankle. You know the ankle's right there. You just, it did, whatever you did didn't work. Exactly. And the second question is, did I already know I have a structural problem in that ankle or not? So if that ankle has altered anatomy, if it's a structural problem, I lower my expectations. I'm still looking for a functional. What do you mean by structural problem? Meaning if it's a previous injury to the ankle that's actually changed the shape of your joint. Or how are you going to know that? Well, usually if you've had, uh, I'm I'm talking more medically now. But wouldn't you go upstream? Is there something else you would be looking at, other things you'd be looking at? So if, if you do whatever it is you do and you, you identify it's not a structural problem, so you either got to change your tactic. Yep. You just got to change your tactic, right? Right. And, and what, I, what I've tried to pride myself in is if we do our screens, pre-screens, tests, and assessments right, you should be getting about an 80-20 positive result, meaning 80% of the time the retest should tell you you made a difference in a good way without causing any other unnecessary side effects. 20% of the time, it's not going to work. And that's where I think a lot of people lose faith. But sometimes it just takes longer for people. 50-year-old tissue ain't the same as 18-year-old tissue. So there are a lot of other things. And you also have to realize this situation has less plasticity than other situations. All right. But if you're willing to take that chance to really be wrong, Mm-hmm. That's that's really what I'm hearing you say, and that's more the strategy. Is like here, the, here's what I'm going to do. I know these tools are valid. I know these tools are reliable. Our screening in this example, I've identified a restricted ankle mobility, and then you're at the end of the day. This is where you start to get buy-in and trust from the clients and patients you work with. Mm-hmm. If you are having these conversations, you are letting them know you. Hey. It's not working. And be willing to say that. I think that's a big-time problem in our profession. We're so concerned that if we say, hey, I've been working on it, but it's it's not getting where we got to change some things up. Yeah. No, I'm the the classic one for changing it up, maybe even too quickly, because I want the results, not because I want to close your case, because I want the feedback and I want to demonstrate plasticity. Because the more plasticity you have in retest, the more your problem was functional and the less it is structural. Well, and I think that's, again, I'm not trying to just highlight all the problems we have in our profession, but because of our 
of not but one, the clients and patients looking for the magic bullet. Fix me. I want to lose 10 pounds by next week. Okay. If I haven't lost 10 pounds by next week, the assumption is you're going to go somewhere else. Well, you have to create those realistic, realistic expectations. Hey, you're 65 right now. Maybe your ankles aren't going to move as well, but let's set the baseline and make sure it doesn't go backwards. And let's make sure we can address all these other things. But having those conversations, creating that awareness, that's what's going to get the buy-in to where that 65-year-old goes and tells their other, his go- other golfing buddies, hey, this is what I'm getting over here. I feel comfortable. I feel confident. I'm in the right hands. And that's what's going to drive more people to see you. There's, I, I, I will dress this up <clears throat> in, in a military or athletic or just average Joe way. So I'll say it a different way every time. But most of the time, we usually get compliments for doing the most thorough musculoskeletal exam anybody's ever had. And it comes in under 20 minutes. It really does. It's, it's, it doesn't take that long to run all these things, especially if you got a little help in clinic. If you don't, 30 minutes. But we usually get a compliment. Nobody's ever looked at me that way before. And secondly, I say, after looking at you that way, I think I found the cause of this problem, the weakest link. And here's the least we could possibly do to change it. I argue for the minimum effective dose. Not, here's, here's everything we're going to do. No. If you don't start sleeping better in the next few days, if you don't start hydrating better, if we don't start working on that ankle twice a day, I want you foam rolling your calf. I'm going to be mobbing in here. We're going to tape your ankle. Here's the least we can do to post a difference. And if we can post a difference, you're in the right place. And I think we can close your case. That's it. And most people, they don't need journal articles or anything. Now, I've already laid it out there. And I've already know 20% of the time, I may not hit that mark. But guess what? If I said, we should have you finish with PT in four weeks, I don't close my ears. One week in, I know we need to be a quarter of the way there. Two weeks in, if we're not halfway there, I already start doing something. But you're continuing to recheck. Check, you're checking yourself. You're checking them. You know, I think Phil Knight said it in his book. If you're going to fail, fail fast. Exactly. So if I'm not on the right track, I want to know that as quick as possible so I can deviate and make a change. And all we're really talking about here is problem solving and decision making. Yeah. And, and let me add one to it. Fail fast with feedback. Is, and, and, and I'm not saying neg- it doesn't have to be positive or negative, but I tell you what, when I make clinicians call their misses, when I make trainers and coaches call their misses, some people just don't like that. And all I'm doing is coaching you up. And so if you, don't, if you don't like to be coached that hard, then just don't ask to be that good. That's it. Because most people who ask to be that good get coached hard at one point. And I see unbelievably talented people, great communicators, get to a point and it just doesn't feel comfortable and they pull back. And they will complain about their business. They will complain that the systems aren't working for them and stuff like that. But I made my nephew call his missus. And the second time he threw 10 bottles, he missed them all, but he knew where he missed. The third time he threw it, he hit two out of 10. All right. I don't think we would have got there by me telling him, no, aim smaller, aim smaller, you know, or something like that. Calling your missus is how you do it. And a lot of people who get enthusiastic about the movement screen can do a good test and still not create a good corrective scenario. And, and, and that's you, okay. You're supposed to be able to do the test first. Right. And you, you keep coming back to the movement screen because that's our wheelhouse. 
However, you're not just in what I'm also hearing you say and what you get into the book is it's not just about the movement screen. It's screening all the things that we know matter, right. the minimum things that we know matter that's going to help you, me as a professional, get this person to where they need to be. Right. So what are the minimum amount of testing, in this example, screenings, and you mentioned the word pre-screening, things that we need to do to put us on the, help us make the better decision? Right. Your intake usually tells you the first screen you need to do. Right. And if your intake is asking lifestyle questions, then you might say, you mind filling out this sleep survey? Hey, can we do a little breathing screen over here with you? Just want to check your your, you know, how long you can hold your breath and do some things like that. So the the pre-screen really does put us a, ahead of the game. And one of the major groups that I wrote this book for. Now let me back up. Because right, I know I know what, what we're gonna the feedback we're gonna get. All right, we've been talking about screening for 25 years. Now we're telling people to quote unquote pre-screen. Well, isn't that just more work? Well, it is. It, it but be is. more specific about the pre-screen because you're not a pre-screen is not something that you, as the professional, need to be overseeing. Nope, you can do it that's with a, an app. You difference. can do it with a sheet of paper. You can right. do it with an assistant. You it's, can it's do it with an email. It's I'm, basically okay. Yeah. But while you know, instead of just sitting in the corner waiting for me, waiting for your your appointment time, or on your way in, anything. Well, you know, if you're sitting in the car, sitting in the subway, getting coming to your thing. Ask the, answer these questions. A Do sur- these things. A survey will tell you the first few screens you need to do, and those screens will tell you the next thing you need to do. And so you can pretty much unpack anybody. But one of the one of the, I guess, consistent problems we've had is when a facility owner, whether it be in rehab and physical therapy and chiropractic, or whether it be in fitness or coaching, the facility owner is inspired by what we do the stats we post and some of the ways that, you know, the the third part of this book is where all the people who put this into play and got the strategy right get to tell their story. And so I, I want everybody to read that because we represented fitness, rehab, uh, high performance. We've represented it all in there where the model has been used the way it was supposed to be. And, and facility owners have come to me and said, I'm having a hard time getting buy-in. Well, I'm sort of old school. I'm like, you signing the checks? <laughs> Mike Contreras said it in his. I got a lot more buy-in when I was a chief than when I was just a you know a captain or something like that. So I get your authority can only get you so much buy-in. But what I try to do in the business and movement book is, is listen, Lee and I spent a weekend explaining this to you. They're not gonna sit and let you explain this to them for a week. You're going to have to communicate this in bits and chunks, and you're going to have to find the weakest link and the minimum effective dose on your intake, in your facility, and start working there. So what I'm trying to do is actually mentor leaders in this book because you can't do this by yourself. You're going to need to understand how to referral, how how to make referrals, how to network, and how to train your staff. Because if you're not all waking up, agreeing on the same strategy, even if each of you has a different tactic. I think we had to make you the orthotic guy in the clinic for a little while because nobody else wanted to do feet. So Lee got to be the orthotic guy, right? But my point is, all the tactics were covered. Everybody knew the system. Everybody needed to know we closed cases. And the 20% that weren't getting better on the call, Gray's got to see them because I, I got a little egg on my face. I want to find out what we didn't unpack here. Well, I think that you bring up a good point there is I think people get confused between tactics and strategies. And that's why I keep coming back to that. You can be the kettlebell expert in your facility. You can be the 
mobility expert and you can be the yoga person in your facility. You, you know, and if I owned a facility, I would want to have all of those people and experts in my facility under one roof, but they all need to be following the same strategy. They all need to be following the same system for intake, for getting people on the right path, because then that's where you have a good, a good community within your facility. Yeah. Because no, they can rely on each other. They can pull it. But if you're all kind of doing your own thing, everybody's got a different way of testing, assessing, that's where it becomes a little bit problematic. No, and, and I want everybody to know, we wouldn't all be here. Me and you wouldn't be here if we hadn't have peeled this down, sort of dissected it, and our core group agreed on a strategy. And we just put our heads down and said, it seems to make more sense than anything else we've ever done. We didn't go against what we learned in school. Test retest is what we learned in school. We just didn't have enough test for what was coming at us. And I think that the trend of movement erosion that we're seeing, we were on the very front end of it, just seeing, man, it just doesn't look right. We did the exact same thing with this guy we did with that guy. It just doesn't look right. you know. But we, we bought in, we went through the growing pains, and boom, we, we, you know, we held each other accountable. And uh, I, I think that, that had we not grown this a little bit slow, uh, with a little less marketing, we could have easily let our confidence put us up on the billboard, just like a lot of people on the internet. Nobody on the internet who's saying they're an expert doesn't think they have something to offer. But my whole point is, um, you got to back it up. You really got to back it up. And when you're messing with people's lives and goals and performance and independence, don't mess that up. You can sell them a shitty car and be sorry for that, but don't screw up somebody's body. Well, that's, that should be the objective of all of us in this profession. I think it's supposed to be do no harm, right? And (laughs) wasting time and wasting money and wasting your talent noodling in in the wrong place (laughs) is, is literally part of that inefficiency. And I hate inefficiency. I, I, if, if we can get you moving better quicker, I want you to, but I'm also interested in how long is that going to hold and what's it going to take to keep it there? The business of movement. The business of movement. That will do it for this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute and subscribe and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your own movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, be sure to first move well, then move often.